Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 6. We'll be reading verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Let us pray. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, you are so gracious and so loving to us. And as we have just come through a day of thanksgiving for all the earthly blessings that you bestow upon us, and we ask that we now focus, God, on being grateful for your Son who was born to come to save this world. We ask you, God, now to open our hearts and our minds and to be filled with the Spirit, the Spirit of understanding and listening to the word that you are giving to us today. It's in your Son's precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Robert. Robert, filling in admirably today is John Sick. I know. If you're like me, I didn't think he got sick. I didn't. I thought he was immune from all things, um, but i uh, be praying for John as he is sick, and I'm sure he's watching right now, so we don't have any secret symbols or anything. That would be really weird. Um, there's no secret elder symbols that we give one another, but uh, be praying for him. John, we love you, and, uh, and I, I would say we're moving on um, and moving forward in our um, walking through Deuteronomy, but this is the fourth week in this exact same passage, so we're not really moving forward, um, and next week we start our Advent series, so we won't really move forward until after Christmas, and really January we'll move forward. I promise we will move forward, um, but this passage of scripture is so central to Deuteronomy, but also central to the whole identity of God's people. From the Old Testament people of God to the New Covenant people of God, the church. Because Jesus himself said that this is the whole of the law, that you love the Lord your God with your everything and that you love your neighbor as yourself. And so over the past few weeks, we've looked at various aspects of this passage, this identity of the people of Israel, this identity of the people of God, this central reality of who we are, that the calling for all believers is a whole life allegiance to the Lord our God, to the one true God, a whole life allegiance to worshiping the Lord as our one true God by living lives that are totally committed to him, that we hear his word, we obey his word, we listen to him, we follow him. And in the face of a culture and a world full of false gods and false worship, Today, we need to focus our lives and focus our hearts and our minds on the call to be true worshipers of the true God. So when we read in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, we are reminded that any God that is not Yahweh God, is not the covenant God, is not the creator God, is not the one true God, is a counterfeit God. And in verse 5, we read, 
that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And so we're told that any worship that is not full allegiance, a full life allegiance to him is a counterfeit worship. Now, I like that word counterfeit because we live in America and in America we don't have a whole lot of culture that's built around bowing down, literally bowing down and praying to golden images or stone images or anything like that. That's, that's, a, that's a thing I see when I get on a plane and I fly to other countries. Now, there are those places in America, but it's not a prevailing part of our culture, right? We're, we're not setting up shrines in our homes and bowing down a whole lot. That, at least not, that's not a temptation for us. We can recognize false worship and false gods when we see it in idol form. But counterfeits are something different. Counterfeits are a real problem for us as the people of God. They're a real temptation for us because what is a counterfeit? A counterfeit is something that looks like the real thing, but it doesn't have the power or authority or life that the real thing has. Think about a counterfeit $100 bill. Maybe you've never held one. I don't know. I hope so. I held one one time. It was a bad counterfeit, but somebody tried to give me a counterfeit $100 bill at a place I worked. Now, you know that you try to pass it off as the thing, the real thing, and you can study as many counterfeits as you want, but really, if you know the real thing, you can spot or feel a counterfeit. They even have the little markers, right, that tell you if it's a counterfeit. So a counterfeit feels like a $100 bill in your pocket until you give it to the person behind the counter and they do the little swipe and, it, and you're in handcuffs, right? That then it all of a sudden is not real. Counterfeits that promise something that looks like the real thing, but they can't deliver. But they, they tempt our hearts. They tempt to pull us away. And so today what I want to do is is focus us in on the fact that there are so many counterfeit gods and counterfeit worship experiences, counterfeits to the real thing that could draw our heart away from being true worshipers. And we must understand these and we must fight them. We must fight against them in our lives. So the first question we have to ask is, if we're going to know, if we're going to look at counterfeit worship, we better ask the question of what true worship is. Because you spot counterfeits based on what the real thing is. And true worship is given to us in several ways. We, we read it in this passage by loving the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. But what does that look like on the outside? What does that look like as a way of life? It, it looks like what Jesus said to the woman at the well in Samaria when he said, you know, you talk about worshiping up on the mountain. They talk about worshiping Jerusalem. Real worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. It's not about the location of the worship. It's about the heart of the worship and the spirit that God gives us for worship. Romans chapter 12, I think, expands on that and reminds us that worship is not just something we do when we gather together, but it is so much more. Romans 12, verses 1 through 2, the Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, if that's not whole life allegiance, I don't know what it is, right? Your whole body, your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. So he says, verse 1, this is what worship looks like. It's a living sacrifice. It's a life of worship. 
It's all of us as the people of God identifying ourselves as people who are sacrificed to the Lord. We're not bringing lambs and rams and goats and bulls. We're bringing ourselves, our whole selves, to the Lord in our lives as a sacrifice, holy and set apart and acceptable to God. And he says, this is how you do it. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So that goes way beyond what happens on Sunday. It includes what happens on a Sunday morning, but it goes way beyond that. And it goes way beyond what happens in your quiet time or your personal devotions. It includes that, but it goes way beyond that. It's a whole life allegiance, a living sacrifice. Tim Chester puts it this way. He says, worship is the way you live your life. It is living your life as if something really matters to you. Now, now here's the thing with that. And keep that quote up there because I don't want you to miss this. You can see in that quote the danger, can't you? Because that means that whatever really matters to you is a thing that you will worship. Is everybody seeing that? Everybody see the temptation now? That there are plenty of counterfeits that everybody tells you should matter to you. That they should matter most to you. You end up with counterfeit hope, counterfeit life, counterfeit worship when you have counterfeit gods. So worship is the way you live your life. It's living your life as if something really matters to you. So what really matters to us? That's the question, right? What does true worship look like? What do you worship? Well, how do we know what really matters to us? And that's where I think this passage gives us a little bit of an insight. And I'm going to just list them off for you. And then I'm going to focus in on one today, mainly because I've already focused on the other ones in the last four weeks. So anyway, here's, here's what they are. Remember, your worship and what you worship really is demonstrated by your diligence. Did you see it there? It says, you shall teach them diligently to your children, verse 7. There's a diligence that comes with something being important to you. You don't say something is important to you and then not put any work into it. If it's important to you, it takes effort and diligence. So how do you spend your time and your effort? That's what reveals your heart and your worship. The second truth is this. What we worship or who we worship is demonstrated by what you pass down to your children and grandchildren. So you're teaching them diligently to your children. You are making a point to pass them on to the next generation. And what you value enough to pass down is what you worship. So whatever your kids are learning from you is what is most important to you. That that should as parents and grandparents, give us a little bit of fear and trembling, right? Because what our kids are learning from us should be the thing that is most important to us. It's also what we worship is demonstrated by what dominates our speech and our conversation. It says you shall talk about them. You should talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. So going to bed, talking about it, waking up, talking about it, eating, talking about it. Hopefully not with your mouthful, kids, right? You're sitting on your couch talking about it. This is central to the reality of what your life is about, is your speech is dominated by what the Lord is doing. So what dominates your thoughts and your speech? That's what is important to you. What demonstrates what you worship? It's what your home life is like. Look at verse 9. 
You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Is your home, the purpose of your home, the way you love your spouse, the way you raise your children, the hospitality you show, does it demonstrate that your home is a place of worship for the one true God? Do you demonstrate and put on display in your home what is most important to you? But the one I want to focus on today is found in verse 8. Demonstrated by your identity, by what you identify with. Whether you identify with the word of the Lord or with the ways of the world, whether you are identified with the people of God or with a counterfeit culture, this is where verse 8 comes in. So look at verse 8. And let's just pause right now because I know there's a lot of commotion. So let's pause right now. And I'm really thankful we have several first responders and medical personnel who was here. We're not sure what's happening outside, but let's just pray. Okay. Father, I pray now for whatever is happening, whoever is hurting or ailing um, on the front porch. Lord, we have plenty of people who are taking care of it. So, Lord, help us now to settle and to know that you are good and that you are in control. Help us as your people to listen and to respond with grace and love. Lord, I pray for those who are taking care of this person and whatever's happening, Lord, that you would demonstrate your power now. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So verse 8 tells us this. You shall bind them, the, the words of the Lord, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. That's weird, right? I mean, that's weird. But is it? We wear baseball caps that demonstrate what we identify with and what as fans of things, right? And there was a whole movement for a while about baseball caps, right? Everybody got loved them or hated them. There was this reality. Everybody wore a baseball cap or a T-shirt that demonstrates what you're about. We do that all the time. So it's not that weird. We, we do outward signs of what is important to us all the time. But they're told you're supposed to take God's word and it's supposed to be so central to who you are that there's outward expression of it in your life. The law of God was to be bound to their hands and between their eyes. So taken literally, this would be an outward indicator of the whole life allegiance that the people had to God. The, the signs in the frontlets are called Teflim. That's the word for them. And Orthodox Jews still continue to wear them today. The English technical term for this is phylacteries. There, there's a fun word. You didn't know you were learning new words today, right? But Teflim and phylacteries. And, and here's what you'll see with Orthodox Jews. They'll have a uh, a leather box tied to their head when they go to the Western Wailing Wall in Jerusalem to pray or when they come to times of prayer. A lot of times you'll see them in special times with them around their, around their head and then they'll have leather straps with verses of Scripture on their arms. This is a reality taken literally. This is what it is. It's animal skin rolled up with a small scroll inscribed with Exodus 13, with Deuteronomy 6, with Deuteronomy 11. And it's attached between the eyes and to the inside of the arms, an outward expression of what we're told was supposed to happen. Now, you notice it in the passage. He doesn't say to do this before he says that they should be on your heart. Verse 6, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So in other words, if it's outward but not inward, it makes no difference. You can put them on the outside, but they should be in your heart. 
Anything outward should be a display of what's true on the inside. And these were to identify the wearer as a follower of Yahweh God. So what are the passages that they put on there? Well, the first one talks about the Passover in Exodus 13, that they would bind them. You shall, these that shall be to you, the Passover feast was supposed to be like a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Later in Exodus 13, there's the redemption of the firstborn sons. And it shall be as a mark on your hand or frontless between your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So God is the redeemer. God is the savior is right there in between their eyes and on their hands. Deuteronomy chapter 11, along with Deuteronomy chapter 6, were written on the scroll for the provision and the discipline of the Lord. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Outward marks have been used by God's people as a sign of loyalty in many ways. There have always been outward symbols, always been ways to put this on display. Circumcision was one of those in the Old Covenant, that, and it demonstrated that the Israelites were God's people. But as the people of God were coming into the land that God had given them, there were many counterfeit gods that were going to be put on display, and they were going to be tempted in every direction by the culture and these counterfeit identities. They would find themselves warring against empires of counterfeit power. The people of God will continue to need to be identified as not being a part of the culture around them, but as belonging to God. That they're not part of the prevailing powers and the prevailing worship and all of the counterfeits around them. Just like Paul said in Romans chapter 12, to not be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. A new heart, a new soul, a new might, a new identity. And when the renewal of the mind happens, what happens next? What happens next is there's a transformed life that appears. When the mind begins to think differently and the mind is given life to understand and apply God's word, what happens to our hands? We begin to do the things that God has decreed. What happens to our feet? We, do, we begin to go the places that God has told us to go. So whenever there's a, a renewed mind, a transformed life appears. With outward expressions of what God has done on the inside, as the Holy Spirit has worked in our hearts. But the fact is, those who belong to the Lord cannot fall into one of two counterfeit allegiances. There are counterfeit allegiances that come. One would be to a counterfeit God, and the other would be to a counterfeit culture. We can't fall prey to those because we're going to be tempted on all sides. So let's think about this for just a second. Remember, there are outward signs, and we wear outward signs of being a Christian every day. Okay, You showed up today. That's an outward sign, right? It's an outward sign. You carry a Bible, some of you really big ones, right? And you, that's an outward sign, right? We, we sometimes wear T-shirts. We don't go certain places. We do go certain places. Those are all outward signs, right? We don't watch certain things. We don't listen to certain things. We do watch certain things. We do. Those are outward signs. There's all kinds of outward signs that we put on. One of the outward signs that's talked about in the Bible is what we did last week with baptism. And I ask kids all the time when I'm, getting ready, when I'm talking to them about baptism just to see if they understand. I ask them the question, have you ever taken a bath? The questions that we have to ask children, Right? 
Have you ever taken a bath? They're like, of course. Have you ever gone swimming? Yeah. Did it wash away your sins? No, of course it didn't. Because that's just an outward reality. And neither will jumping in this water. It's an outward sign, an outward expression of an inward reality. And anything that we show on the outside is supposed to be because the word is written on our heart. Because we've been changed from the inside. So unless we understand the real thing and then understand that there are counterfeits, we will fall prey to the counterfeits. I promise you, because the counterfeits are easier. The counterfeits are easier. It's easier to navigate this world if we give in to the counterfeits. And so I want us to know what they are. So the first is this. Counterfeit worship can be worship of false gods and worshiping God in false ways. So if we have a counterfeit worship of a counterfeit God, when we exchange the Lord our God for a false God, for false worship, what happens oftentimes is that there could be false gods and false ways of worshiping God. I was talking to somebody this week, and they were trying to reach out to churches that might partner with them in something, and they said, and I got online to look up this one church that somebody gave me, and when I got online and I saw it, the pastor was in a feather boa. We decided not to call them, um, to partner with them. And, and they, they said, what, what, what's the deal? And I said, oh, there's so many deals, right? But the fact of the matter is that there's an issue here where people can say they're worshiping the real God, but they worship him in ways that aren't pleasing to him, which means they are actually replacing him. They're replacing him with another God of their own making. We have to be careful so that we're not just saying we're worshiping the real God, but we're worshiping the real God in the real way. Counterfeit worship can be worship of false gods and worshiping God in false ways. And the Israelites have already been guilty of this in the wilderness. Remember when Moses went up on the mountain and he had been gone for a while? They weren't even sure if he was alive anymore. So they go to Aaron and they're like, make us a God that we can worship. But they said it this way. We want to worship God. They thought if they could make a calf, a golden calf, or something that they could see, they could worship God. While God is delivering his word to Moses, you shall make no graven images. <laughs> Don't make idols. Don't worship idols. They're down saying, we want to worship God, but they're going to worship in a way that's not pleasing to him. See, we can worship false gods or we can worship gods falsely. And the Israelites have done this. In fact, their whole history will be replete with examples of them setting up false worship and allowing false worship to happen throughout the kingdom. They would fall prey to this. And in the future, in Ezekiel, there's a vision that's given of Jerusalem having been turned into a place of counterfeit worship, of false worship, and God's wrath and discipline coming upon the city. And in the face of that false worship, there would be some who would be marked out as grieving what was happening. They would moan and they would grieve over the fact that God's, God's glory was being trampled on in the city. Ezekiel 9 says it this way. The Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. They're the ones marked out because they're still faithful. And to the others, he said in the hearing, Pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye shall not spare and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark. 
and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. You see the danger of giving in to false worship and worshiping falsely? There's real danger, and the danger comes from God is not pleased, and God will judge. And the danger continues today. God's people can buy into counterfeit gods around us, remaking God into our own image, or worshiping God in ways that are not prescribed or allowed in his word. Taking God's word and warping it to make it more palatable or agreeable to the culture around us. The abominations that come out of so many so-called churches today, it's really evidence of this. It's the evidence of the temptation and the drift towards counterfeit worship of counterfeit gods. So we have to be diligent. You have to be diligent in order to keep on track. Otherwise, the drift is always to counterfeits. And we need to remember that when we abandon identifying ourselves with what God has said, We're actually abandoning identifying ourselves with the God who said it. When we get rid of what God has said, we get rid of God. When we unhook ourselves from what God has declared, we unhook ourselves from God as our Lord. There's also counterfeit worship that I think is probably an even bigger problem for us individually Counterfeit worship that is self-worship through self-righteousness. This is also a way we can be marked out as looking holy but not being holy. As looking like God's people but not actually being God's people. Using outward symbols to promote our prestige, to promote our piety and our holiness. Instead of taking God's word into our hearts, like verse 6 says, and being transformed from the inside, the Pharisees were the people who took these phylacteries, as we were calling them, And they took them into being a status symbol for how holy they were, like an outward piety that had nothing to do with their hearts. Jesus called them out for it. He says, you you honor me with your lips or with your mouth, but your hearts are far from me. But he calls them out in another way. This is what they would do. They would actually make them as big as they possibly could in between their eyes so that people would think they're holier than they were. It's the same thing that Jesus said when he said, hey, why are you praying in public all of these flowery prayers so that everybody pats you on the back and says, you're such a good prayer? Or when you're fasting, you're walking around like, oh, I'm fasting. See how holy I am. He's like, slick back your hair. Like, do yourself up. Get out there and live your life. Nobody needs to know you're fasting. He says, if people are patting you on the back for all of the holiness you're doing, that's your reward. You don't get one from God. And he comes back and he says this in Matthew chapter 23. They do all their deeds to be seen by others for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. I just love that picture. (laughs) It's like they're supposed to have the word of God but in their heart and then between their eyes and instead they cover their eyes because they can't see the truth. They can't see the truth of their own hearts. They put on a show outwardly, but their hearts are far from God. But true worship is a whole life. It starts with the whole heart. And this is still a temptation for us today, isn't it? We stack up all sorts of outward signs of our supposed holiness. All good things, but without the heart, they're meaningless. Church attendance, Bible studies that we've completed, 
Books we've read, podcasts we listen to. I listen to the right people, not the wrong people. I go to the right church, not the wrong church. I do this, I do that. We, baptism can be that for some. I mean, seriously, like the whole social media reality of being a Christian is amazing because this is, there, there's like this whole movement that's been happening for five or six years now where it seems like a quiet time doesn't happen unless your Bible and the Bible study and your coffee mug is shown with a beautiful scene off your back porch, right? Like then we know you had a quiet time. But that, that's the reality for people is that unless it's seen, then it doesn't matter. But that's not what Scripture teaches us. In fact, any of that is a cheap substitute for true worship. Any outward symbol or sign of allegiance can become a cheap substitute for true worship. When we're more concerned about people noticing us, or we're more concerned about the approval of others than we are about being transformed by God. See, God's design is for outward symbols to demonstrate that they're on our heart. That God's word is on our heart. That's what Deuteronomy 6, 6. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. When outward actions of holiness are divorced from a heart transformed by God's grace, then true worship will not happen. Only counterfeit worship will happen. Let me, let me, let me put it this way. It is okay. In fact, it is good to desire to be holier. We should all desire to be holier. It is not okay to try to appear to be holier in order to put yourself in a position over somebody else. That's not the design. That's counterfeit holiness. And it's counterfeit worship. So worshiping God wrongly or worshiping the wrong God is counterfeit worship. The second And I think probably the thing that is most dangerous for us right now, there's lots of dangers, but this is one that's really easy for us to see the danger. And in fact, the vast majority of the New Testament seems to deal with this, and especially in the book of Revelation. So yes, today, as we work our way through Deuteronomy, you're going to get to read Revelation 2. You didn't see that one coming, right? You just didn't see that one coming today. But here's what we're going to do. I want you to understand that counterfeit worship actually can look like syncretism or buying into the culture and giving into the pressures of the world around us. And it can be just as counterfeit. Peer pressure, political pressure, state pressure, cultural pressure to identify with counterfeit powers, counterfeit providers, counterfeit flourishing. When we already know that Jesus is the king and we know that Jesus is our provider. This is one of the primary ways We can be in danger today when we, as Paul wrote, are conformed to the world, conformed to the thinking of the world, conformed to the ways of the world, conformed to the power and the pursuits of the culture around us. And in Revelation chapter 12 through 14, we're actually given a picture of this as John looks at this reality and he says that there's a reminder here that from the birth of Creation from the birth of humanity, Satan has been trying to destroy humanity. Why has Satan been trying to destroy humanity? Because God's untouchable. He knew he couldn't touch God. He knew he couldn't destroy God. He knew he couldn't take God out. So who does he go after? He goes after humanity. He goes after the top of God's creation. He goes after Israel because from Israel will come the Messiah. 
He goes after the church because the kingdom of heaven is born through the work of the church. He's been at war with God's people for forever. And the dragon that's here in this passage in Revelation 12 through 14 is there Satan wanting to destroy the people of God and his beasts who are empires and state power and cultural and economic pressures have constantly made war against the people of God. You can just look back through the Old Testament, the Babylonians and Assyrians, right? The Persians making war against God's people, bow down to this idol or you go into a fiery furnace. Stop praying to God. Only pray to the emperor or you get thrown to the lion's den. In Rome, declare Caesar is Lord, not Jesus is Lord. Or be thrown to the lions. Be hung up on a burning cross to light my parties in the backyard of my palace. To today, in communist China and North Korea and other places, forcing people to denounce Christ or die, ISIS, Hamas, other Islamists killing Jews and martyring Christians, empires and powers have made war against God's people from the beginning. And the temptation for us would be, let's find the path of least resistance. Let's not, our, let's not put ourselves out there too much. The, the temptation would be we, we declare allegiance to other powers, to state powers, to political powers, or to the second beast of Revelation 13, which is the power of the peer pressure and the culture around us, declaring to us that we must buy into the way the world does things. Look at Revelation 13. You can flip over there. It's not dangerous to do. You can flip to Revelation 13. I know with everything going on in the Middle East, there is like once an interpretation, and I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, I'm not going to tell you who the Antichrist is, so just get that out of your head today. It's not going to happen. I mean, I could, but I'm not going to. Um, I'm kidding. <laughs> there are many. Um, let's put it that way. Uh, so we're going to start with Revelation 13, verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. By the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceived those, deceives those who, are, who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom, almost like a renewed mind. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So let me stop right here. I'm not saying that Deuteronomy chapter 6 and the mark on the forehead and the mark on the arm is the same as the mark of the beast. I'm not saying that whatsoever, so get that out of your head right now. All right. What I'm saying is there's an outward reality of an inward allegiance. Did you guys catch that? In Deuteronomy 6, there's an outward sign of an inward allegiance. In Revelation 13, there's an outward sign of an inward allegiance. But 
Don't miss this. Did you catch all the counterfeit imagery there in that passage? Did you catch it? Two horns like a lamb, looking like Jesus, but speaking like the dragon, a counterfeit. Verse 12, a counterfeit resurrection, mortal wound that was healed. All the counterfeit signs and miracles. And then ultimately in verse 16, causing all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, all of, all of the different people groups that are mentioned that now there is no rich or poor, there is no great or small, there is no free or slave in Christ Jesus, making all of them now need to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. An outward mark of allegiance. Why? Why would you need this outward mark? In order to take part in life. In order to fit into the culture. In order to have a role in the economy. In order to flourish. In order to fit in. Or in order to have a place in society. You have to conform to the world, the world says, in order to flourish. Not being transformed by the renewal of our minds, but by walking in the world's ways, not walking in wisdom. You see, I believe the temptation for the Israelites going into the land was going to be to conform to the, all the powers and the authority and the prosperity that they would see around them, to conform to it. But God's call for his people is to be transformed, to be transformed by identifying with him and his word with total allegiance. And the temptation for us today is to take on the appearance of the culture around us, to make our lives easier, to make, to make it just a little less stressful, to avoid the trouble, to avoid the trials, and ultimately to avoid the persecution that would come with being wholly identified with God in the middle of a culture that is anti-God. But can I just remind you that Jesus promised us that we would be persecuted if we are wholly allegiant to him. If we say he is our God and we stand with him, we will be persecuted. So I, I think it, it's really important for me to tell you this, that it's never going to be easy to be a Christian in the world. But it is really easy to be a counterfeit Christian. It's never going to be comfortable to be a whole life worshiper of the one true God. So long as Satan is still awaiting his final demise and his minions of power and culture are at work to deceive us and to sway us from real worship and true worship, it's never going to be comfortable for God's true worshipers. But it can be very comfortable for those who buy into the culture and buy into the lies of the enemy, who buy into the counterfeits. So we can either hold an allegiance to the world or to the one who's overcome the world. This is the only two choices. You can't have it both ways. God's calling for the people of God is to live lives that are obviously committed to him as our one true God. As people of God. We identify as those who belong to him or we identify with the world in the worship of counterfeit gods and counterfeit saviors. And the trouble that we go through in this world for staying faithful to the one true God is nothing compared to the trouble for those who align themselves with the counterfeit gods. See, we think we're making it easy on ourselves. We're just making it harder in the end. The path of least resistance now leads to destruction in the end. God is calling his people to be true worshipers and only true worshipers, whole life worshipers, 
Transformed worshipers, not conformed compromisers, will one day worship God forever and ever around his throne. Revelation 14 goes on to say, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. I just love the imagery here. It's hearkening back to everything we've read in Deuteronomy. It's hearkening back to reminding us in Exodus of God's people being marked out as his and they're sealed by him. They belong to him. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgin. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. And I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. Then he said with a loud voice, Fear God, give him glory, because the hour of the judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. I mean, the divide is clear, isn't it? It's those who have been transformed by the word written on your heart and have an outward sign, outward display of who they belong to versus those who are putting on display through their lives that they belong to this world. Only those who are marked out as God's people by God's word and true worship of God are going to be seated with Christ, ruling and reigning forever. Revelation 20 says, And I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, those who wore their outward expression of their inward hearts pretty openly to the point that it cost them their lives, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the promise given to those of us who would identify ourselves wholly in allegiance to God. So, as we get ready to sing, where does that leave us today? Well, the simple reality is this. God's design is for God's people to be marked out as true worshipers of the one true God by remembering and keeping his word. We have to be changed by it. Inwardly, we're changed by trusting God's word. Like Psalm 119 tells us, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Outwardly, we're marked by obedience to God's word. Like Matthew 5.16, it's got to be on display. It's for the world to see. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and not give glory to you like the Pharisees were looking for, but give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The life of true worship that God has called us to is that we have to live as if we have only one master. Being marked out and sealed inwardly by the Spirit of God and being Marked outwardly by obedience that comes through walking by the Spirit. Marked out as His and His alone. So what will that look like? The good news is the Bible doesn't leave us guessing. 
The Bible doesn't say, hey, walk by the Spirit, walk according to God's Word, good luck. God actually tells us what it looks like. And when we're declaring that Jesus is ours, that the Son of God identified with us in our weakness, identified with us in the flesh, came to earth and put on flesh to identify with us, that he even identified with our sin by taking our sin upon himself on the cross. When we're declaring that, then we get to declare that we identify with him by faith. And so not only do we get the benefits of his death, we get the benefits of his resurrection. We get to be raised with him and walk with him. And we get the benefits of his spirit because he said, I'm going away and I'm sending a helper to you so that you'll never be alone. And we get to walk by that spirit. We get to be changed from the inside. But if you say you've been changed on the inside, it's got to show on the outside. And the primary way it's got to be shown on the outside is that you look different than the rest of the world. We look different than the rest of the world. How different? Galatians chapter 5. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me because we're going to read this. And then what we're going to do is we're going to make a declaration after we read this. And we're going to say, I have assurance because Jesus is mine. I belong to him. He belongs to me. What Jesus has done for me, I now declare. And I declare that Jesus is mine. But this is what it looks like to be the people of God. So read aloud with me if you would, Galatians chapter 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, and you are not under the law, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality... Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Father, we pray now that we would walk by the Spirit because your word has been written on our hearts by your Spirit. We've been given new hearts, renewed minds, so that we can have transformed lives. Or may we not be conformed to this world, but declare at every turn, whether we're lying down or when we rise up, when we're walking by the way, when we're in our homes, when we're at our jobs, when we're at our schools, when we're with our families, when we are driving down the road, when we are in public places, when we have any opportunity, may we declare that we have assurance, not because of what we have done, but because Jesus is mine. And that we long to see you face to face, to see you come again, to set right what is wrong, and to bring us to yourself so that we can be with you. The Lord, mark us out today. Mark us out today as people of faithfulness. 
because you've been so faithful to us. We pray in Christ's name.